What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where, you guessed it, I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, but on this portion of today's episode, guess what? Fangraphs, John Taylor is hopping on this very podcast to talk all things Major League Baseball, as he does at this time every single week. John and I hit on a multitude of things, David Stern's future in Milwaukee, uh, the latest MLB proposal to the MLBPA when we could see, man, this lockout end, uh, them wanting to cut minor league paying jobs, all that. Um, The Rays, are they open to trading Austin Meadows? Um, We also have uh, Mr. Suzuki coming over and a really good piece in Fangraphs.com about him and his arrival and where the best fits might be. Uh, does he stay in the West Coast? All that and more. What kind of player he's going to be? Um, and then the Oakland A's uh, season review, the 2021 Oakland A's season review. What went right? What went wrong? Uh, Matt Olson's future with the team. Matt Chapman taking a step back offensively. Uh, all that and more on the MLB centric episode with Fangraphs John Taylor. Um, don't forget, folks. Uh, there's an easy way to support this very program. It starts with. Uh, if you are an Apple Podcast listener or Spotify and you're listening right now, go ahead and leave this show a five-star rating and a review. Let us know what you like about the show and all that good stuff, um, wherever we get your podcasts. Uh, go visit chasethomaspodcast.com. Oh, yeah, that's where you can get access to every previous episode. Uh, go ahead and subscribe to the Sports Renaissance Man, the daily newsletter, sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Sports Renaissance Man, that's me. Um, all that and more. Uh, also, the main thing, we're on YouTube now, so you can watch this very podcast as well. Uh, YouTube.com, look up the Chase Thomas Podcast, subscribe, like, share, all that good stuff, Chase Thomas Podcast on YouTube now. Um, all right, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast, the Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. Oh my goodness, the Chase Thomas Podcast with John Taylor on video. John, it's you. It's it is you. me. It is me. For for folks who had no idea what I looked like, which seems kind of mm-hmm. unlikely because I've had a little avatar the whole time. But yes, it is me in video. Well, so they made... watch my eyes move. Exactly. And you've got a, just an incredible view. Like out of everyone who's been on the video podcast since we got started. And... <gasps> You got the same water bottle that I use, and I don't. It's not in here. I don't have that in the office right now. I didn't know, John. We could have had some real great brand uniformity on this podcast today. We could have gotten I, companies and brands sending us free stuff if we just advertise properly. I mean, I'm down for that. I would absolutely take all those, like whatever they want to do, because those things are clutch. They're great. They're very, they're great. One of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, John Taylor is there in i'm guessing is this still manhattan we're looking at behind you john yeah that is basically hudson yards what you're seeing over there the big building uh, Mm -hmm. project that took over the 30s in the very western part of manhattan Mm -hmm. westmost part of manhattan so get a little glimpse of that there with the skyscrapers and the weird angles and all the lights Mm -hmm. that is that is manhattan for those who are curious I like it. I like it. Um, and then we got to do the, the walkthrough behind you. So this is the rate your room segment of the podcast before we get into the the hat choice, which I'm excited to find out who is uh, on top of John Taylor's head at the moment. But um, 
Let's get it. Do the is it Room Raiders? Was that the MTV show? Was that what it was? What, was there an MTV show? I thought the thing had just started during the pandemic of like whatever like Twitter account it was that was like mm-hmm. here. Let's rate what your Zoom setup looks like or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, was there an MTV show like that too? There was a. I'm pretty sure there was a show called like Room Raiders and not Raiders, but like Raiders. Like oh, the, Room the, Raiders. Okay. Yeah, I don't. And, I don't remember that one. I watched a lot of it, John. I'm not gonna lie; that was one of my summer things that I had on in the background. I, I like that one. Two a days. Um, Big Laguna Beach guy back in the day. What is Loves. what is a what is a two a days? Two a days was the high school football show uh, for Hoover, Alabama. Um, oh, that's yes. very random. It, it was a big thing because they were like one of the best in the country, and um, their quarterback ended up playing at Alabama. But it was a show chronicling uh the hoover buccaneers uh during their heyday with coach rush probst um you a lot of a lot of new yorkers were watching i'm surprised you weren't uh you weren't keeping up with uh, the good folks down there in hoover alabama john i was gonna say are there is this like uh were were there any like notable names that were part of this i mean rush probst is uh, just to just type in Rush Probst ESPN and read the long form story on Mr. Rush Probst. I, I promise yeah. you will not be disappointed. Um, but also, he just got a new show uh, on yeah. Netflix. He was the one who did the Valdosta show. Uh, something high. It was not hang time high. Like was, I said, the Valdosta show. I, I, mm-hmm. I do not know what that is. <laughs> we live in two different worlds, John, you and I. You're in the New York bubble and I'm in the, the South. I live bubble. in New York and you live in Georgia is what you're trying to say. <laughs> I don't live in Georgia. I, oh, sorry, I, you live in you live in the great state of Tennessee. The great state of Tennessee, but both are great states. Uh, as I tell the sports renaissance woman and all the good folks uh, at this point in my life, I was a I will always be a Georgia boy, but I'm still a Tennessee man because um, uh, big man commitments here um, in Tennessee. <laughs> big man commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, John, let the good folks know who who you're rocking right now because i have no idea who that is so this is the hat of a now defunct minor league team called the albuquerque dukes okay uh they i got this off a of hat club which uh-huh. most i'm sure most hat connoisseurs are aware of hat club is a fantastic place mm-hmm. um yeah that that's pretty much it. just the albuquerque dukes that's so that's a duke on your head that's yes. what a duke looks like okay I mean, he's got the conquistador vibe, right? Which is kind of cool, but mm-hmm. yes, he is entirely. Apparently, he is a duke. Let me give you a little history. Okay. Uh, the first, it, it, the Dukes were the first professional team in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. They started playing in 1915, mm-hmm. and they lasted. They kind of went in and out of existence for a little bit there, as a lot of minor league teams did, mm-hmm. and. Okay, here we go. The Dukes continued to play in the Texas League until the end of the 1971 season. Uh, then they moved to they moved from Spokane to Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. So they, apparently they had moved at one point, and they are now the Isotopes. So this is what the old Isotopes used to be. Isotopes, I like that. Yeah. So what ha- what had happened was I like that. Mm-hmm. What had happened was um, the team that was in Albuquerque was moved to Portland in 2001. Mm-hmm. And then a new team was moved there from Calgary, but they were renamed the Isotopes. So the old Dukes are now the Portland Beavers. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting because a uh, friend of the pod on the NFL show, uh, Mr. Evan Swartz is from Portland. And he informed me, I think this was on last week's show, um, that 
Portland is known for this, not beaver, but it's something like a beaver. And I'd never heard of it before. Do you know what I'm talking about? That they hunt actually in... Are you talking uh, about Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon? Oh, I'm talking about Portland, Oregon. Are you talking yeah, about I'm Maine? Talking about, I'm also talking about Portland, Oregon. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because um, I was going to say, it's not the sea dogs. We know about the Portland sea dogs. Um, that's not a beaver. It's a sea no, dog. that is a sea dog. Um, a <laughs> uh, what is it called? It's like this. You have. It's not a Nalia. It's something. It was an animal I'd never heard of, but it's basically like a... Um, it's basically like a rat version of a beaver and they hunt it. And I, I'd never seen this thing before, but um, beaver, I'm going to look up Portland beaver rat because, oh, Nutria, that's what it's called. Oh, the it's Nutria. Nu- yeah, I've never okay. heard of the Nutria. Okay. Did not know this was a thing. It looks like a, a giant water rat. Yes. Yes. I don't know if I'd hunt a Nutria. I was looking at it. I'm like, I don't think this would be fun. This would be gross. I'm not picking up this thing. Like, that's not something I'm uh, I'm going after uh, in the in the Portland wilderness. I don't, I don't know about you. you. <laughs> not for me. Not for me. Uh, John Taylor, speaking of baseball history, you know how yes. we have to start this. We have some baseball history for you. Unfortunately, you know what's sad is I was looking at a lot of different stuff and when we do this and it's unfortunately mostly sad i feel like a lot of baseball history is kind of depressing um when you go down these rabbit holes but i found uh, like this is pretty crazy i don't know if you remember this but in 1964 john uh the cubs second baseman ken hubs who was 22 is found dead in his private plane which crashed on february 13 1964 near provo utah while en route to colton california as a rookie in 1962 hubs had played in 78 consecutive games without making an air john this just adds to my my life my life advice no private planes i'll never go on a private helicopter a private plane small planes small helicopters it doesn't matter i'm never going on it it's something that i will never ever ever do yeah for the most thing for the most part like when you hear about those in history or, or in baseball history it's usually followed by something like this it's like and then that person died yeah you know uh, ken hubbs Corey Lytle, thurman munson obviously the big one uh Baseball has claimed more than its fair share of players through through flight, through plane accidents. And I guarantee the great majority of them, if not all of them, have been Roy Halladay, of course, the most recent, um, have been guys flying their own private planes or trying to fly for themselves and invariably crashing. It is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Um, I cannot necessarily recommend it. And if I if you do decide to get into personal private flying, do know that there is a very good chance you will die in the process. Um, yeah, not not for me. Not any any time you hear of like an in-season death like that, good odds are that it happened because of some kind of uh, plane malfunction that they were involved in. Yeah, it's just when it goes wrong there, there's some kind of mistake. It's not like a, a whoopsie. This is not a, a whoopsie situation, John. Like no, when you're... Mistakes, mistakes on an airplane, if you're flying it, usually do not end with you being able to learn from it necessarily unless your name is harrison ford and you just keep crashing your plane every few <laughs> years but surviving because he's harrison ford i guess that is true he is harrison ford um i also forgot that i could just use i could add some braves aspect to this um shout out to the 2021 hold on 2021 atlanta brave world champion so that took so much effort just to show up <laughs> i look john i'm still getting used to like it being backwards like i have to like my mind's telling me to do one thing and uh, my body yeah the the, the the mirroring is also kind of like i i'm definitely having that mirroring moment where i'm like right no i gotta do yeah it's showing up on the wrong side 
See, you get what I'm saying. You get what I'm saying. Um, but I have this Braves calendar, daily calendar that uh, my family got me for my uh, for Christmas. And so I get a new trivia fact every day. So I'm going to give you today's trivia fact, John. And I'm going to see yeah, if you can get it. Let's do it. In 2019, it took Austin Riley only 26 games to reach 10 career home runs, the fastest in Braves history. Whose mark did he break? To reach how many home runs? Uh, so he had it took 10 career home runs in only 26 games. So home runs in 26 games. Who got there first? Mm-hmm. Who hit 10 home runs in fewer than 26 games? Or I guess a little bit more than 26 games because he broke it. Yeah. Um, my guess is Andrew Jones. Ooh, good guess. But no, no. It's a name that sounds very 1930s, John. It's Wally Berger. Okay. Who did it in 29 games. Wally Berger. I believe Wally he was on the Boston Braves. We need a Wally back in back in the world. There was Wally Zerbiak for a little bit, but not a Wally Joyner for a little too. But yeah, we're we we're short on we're short on we're short on sports Wallies now. Not a lot of Wallies. Has anyone ever not called you Johnny? John, not real. No, I, I I don't think I, I'd give off much of the vibe of a Johnny. What about a Jonathan? I mean, that is my actual name. So no, but do you go by Jonathan? Like, have you ever? No, I, I go Johnny? by Johnny just because shorter and easier, less okay. spelling. Did you ever have a nickname growing up? Nah, I mean, John is already. By it, no, nah, John's not really a nickname; it's just a shortening. But that that was always enough, anyway. I feel like <laughs> you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, but I like it, Jonathan, because it's Jonathan Taylor Thomas talks Major League Baseball. Remember when I was doing that bit for a little bit? I thought I we know. were still doing it, and we had all we had, it was just always there under the surface. It is under the surface, just like Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Even though you don't see him, he's there somewhere. Young. What? What is the the? You make him song evil. Well, I don't know. He got a lot of education. And as we know, higher education, it's not to be trusted. And he left acting for higher education. Uh, people are saying, what, what do you, why would you do that? Uh, other than for not so great. Uh, I mean, he, can, he can, he can survive off those sweet, sweet home improvement syndication dollars. Yeah. I also just like that. He was just like, I'm, I'm good. I did the child acting. I'm just going to go uh, be really smart and fade away from the public. Well, it's sector. the funny, the funny thing to me now is we had Jonathan. I had Jonathan Taylor Thomas as my uh, almost name sharing nemesis. Mm-hmm. And now that just transfers to Colts running back, Jonathan Taylor. That's true. Who see, I will not be pursuing any kind of rivalry with because he is much bigger and stronger than me. As of right now, John, it's early. It's February 15th. Those early New Year's resolutions. Uh, I remember we were talking before the new year. You were like, goal for this year, I'm going to get as jacked as humanly possible. I'm going to turn back the clock and bring back the Rip John that I've seen pictures of, folks. Like he he downplays it now, but John I'm, I'm back in the th- day. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like how like how long I would last in a gym at this point before injuring mm-hmm. myself in the per- in the pursuit of getting jacked. And I think it's about 40 minutes. Okay. But here's the thing about the gym, John, and I have a love-hate relationship with the gym. I mean, running will always be my thing until I physically can't do it anymore and the roads just destroy my knees to the to the final degree. But there is nothing more interesting than seeing someone use a, a machine the wrong way. I'm telling you, John, it's it's a tradition unlike any other that will never not make my day of just seeing someone just go for it and do it completely wrong and just not care. It's, I think it's really nice. I think the lat pull down machine was designed explicitly <laughs> for that purpose, just to trick people into using it, despite having no idea how to use it or what muscle group it works or what an appropriate amount of weight is. Like mm-hmm. 
that that thing is just is just there for people to just screw around with i think i i think so i think so john um we have some actual baseball stuff that we should probably get into at some point on this podcast so i want to start here because i wonder if this is going to be a new thing where it's like certain gms who make something out of nothing and in smaller markets where the odds are more stacked against them uh financial restraints are more real this is something that i think braves fans have kind of just dealt with over the last couple years where it's like is alex anthopoulos just going to keep uh biding his time in atlanta before he gets called back up to a uh a big market if the mets or whoever come calling and more money and more opportunity with the payroll and that kind of thing because um it's harder it's harder to win um in the smaller and medium markets not because they're not good at their job it's just because if the owner tells you no and the owner uh decides we're not doing this or i'm not signing the luxury tax or i'm not signing the competitive balance tax or whatever it is um we're not signing player x because i don't want to do that um go f- make it work with a young guy who doesn't cost anything over the veteran who could um i just wonder if we're going to a point where certain guys are just like, I got to prove myself here, but then like, I'm still waiting for that payday. Like I, I, this is not fun anymore to just keep trying to figure this out. And this is all to say that, um, David Stern's contract, um, is a little interesting. Um, he gets out of it, John early. If the brewers win the pennant, what do you make of this? I mean, it makes sense only in so in so far as, I would the understanding in my mind is that you would have something like that because presumably by winning the pennant and and perhaps going further and winning the World Series, Stearns would probably become the most in demand general manager candidate uh, in the sport. Mm-hmm. So I would think that the Brewers, in recognizing that, would just kind of allow that to happen because I mean at a certain point, like I you know he is their president of baseball operations, he's in charge of everything. Like they've given him all the titles and the prestige and the and the kind of you know, all the protections pretty much that any team can build in to keep their guy around. Um, my guess would be kind of one of two things is that, you know, they would let, they would let Stearns kind of see, you know, what, what, if there is in fact a market for him, what it would look like, you know, what it might cost, who, what teams would be interested. And I think most importantly to him to give him the opportunity to make that decision without having to worry about, you know, Oh, what about the team I'm leaving behind? Because I think it makes part it makes sense too in that in that vibe of well if we don't win the pennant that means the work is unfinished and you know this team still has somewhere to go if they do win the pennant and again by extension follow that up by winning the World Series you know you could you could argue that Stearns at least when it comes to the work he's done in Milwaukee probably there is no there is no mountain higher to climb than past winning a World Series I mean you could argue that a pennant probably doesn't really cut it but again getting Milwaukee to that point I mean we, we've already seen that Stearns is presumably you know has been a very popular general manager, uh, president of baseball ops candidate when previous vacancies have arisen. Obviously the big thing here is the fact that, you know, that uh, the Mets pursued him prior to hiring Billy Epler because he is a New York guy who grew up a Mets fan. Of course he turned them down. They ended up with Epler. Epler though is friends with Stearns, which I kind of think led to that idea that Epler was kind of there as a kind of to create a a welcoming pad for Stearns (laughs) and to start kind of building a front office in advance of him being there, which I, find kind of weird because the other side of the Mets thing is, well, what happens to Sandy Alderson and his son who also have their own kind of <laughs> dominion within the Mets front office, but that, that has more to do with the Mets. It doesn't surprise me. Cause like I said, I, I think 
that both the Brewers and Stearns understand that the level of success he's found in Milwaukee has made him really appealing to other teams. And I think therein, therein lies the implicit understanding that if you do achieve what you want to achieve here in Milwaukee, we're not going to stand in your way if you want to pursue something somewhere else, which is also probably just a, a reflection on the Brewers part that at a certain point, uh, Stearns may get too expensive for their desires and that they can just pivot to the front office he has built underneath him and simply move one of his lieutenants up to the top. I mean, that's kind of the thing. All these guys have uh, life, uh, kind of set lifespans with these teams. And I think, you know, what you see definitely, what you've seen a lot uh, through especially the last five years, is the guys who've been building those front offices kind of removing themselves to more senior roles where they seem to be less involved in the, in the day-to-day and giving more of that day-to-day work to their lieutenants. So I would not be surprised if Stearns is part of that or is, is kind of eyeing something similar. And regardless of whether he's out of his contract next year or after the end of this year or after the end of next season, I, I do think that from that point forward, he's probably going to pivot to being more of a, you know, it, it, another any other team that hires him is hiring him not simply as a general manager, but as their new head of baseball operations and basically telling him or asking him, uh, bring in your people, build this the way you wanted to. You are in charge. You are in control. This is your franchise. Um, so we'll see when that happens, but I mean, I, I wouldn't put the Brewers as a pen and favorite right now, <laughs> but I think one way or another, this is, you know, these, these next two seasons will probably be the end of Stearns' time in Milwaukee. Cause I, unless he really is committed and he really loves Milwaukee and he really just wants to be there. I, I can't imagine that, you know, it's at a certain point, there's gotta be some big team. Maybe it's the Mets, maybe it's someone else who comes calling to give him the opportunity to just build whatever he wants. Uh, with whatever with whatever tools he needs. What if it's just the Yankees? Wouldn't that be funny if like Cashman's finally like I'm good, like I've done enough here? Because Cashman's succession, the the Brian Cashman succession battle, I'd be genuinely very interested to 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 learn about. I don't know enough about nearly enough about the Yankees front office or its setup or the people within it to just to be able to say with any level of confidence, like oh, would the Yankees already have someone internally ready to replace mm-hmm. Cashman if you were to say tomorrow, hey, the 2022 season is going to be my last as, as head of the, the Yankees front office or whatever. I don't know. I, I would gen- I would genuinely be curious to see how that would work out because obviously I think aside from running the Dodgers, there's probably no more desirable front office position in baseball than being put in charge of the Yankees and everything that that comes with, even with the press attention and, and the notoriety and the scrutiny and the expectations. So... Yeah, I, I would. I think. I think that probably is a conversation that is going to have to start to happen relatively soon. I mean, Brian Cashman has been in charge of that front office for the last twenty years, and though he's still one of, if not the, you know, one of the better, if not the best, uh, baseball ops guys in the sport. I mean, they're eventually you have to imagine they have to start crafting some kind of succession plan for him, because I have to imagine that he, for as much as whatever whatever day to day stuff, he's already kind of offloaded to his lieutenants or to whoever else in his front office does that work. You have to imagine at some point he is going to want to step away, uh, that this has been enough of his life running this team. He's also done like the whole thing. It's kind of wild. Cashman has been like public enemy number one in New York. He's been uh, in the tabloids for crazy reasons. He's survived everything. He's won He's won the title. He's been good. He's been looked at as like, what are you doing, Cashman? You overspent and destroyed us. And it's like, oh, no, Cashman's back. He did it. He got Garrett Cole. Cash is back. And I don't know. I just feel like Cashman has done everything. Like he is. He's one of those rare GMs who has just been through it all. Like he, there's nothing yeah, left he, for Brian Cashman to like experience as a baseball general no, he, manager. He's done everything that he could do in New York. I think the only thing missing at this point would be one more title to go out on. 
um, or at least one more title probably with the, I would be curious if once this particular Yankees roster, as we mm-hmm. now know it, once it has more or less been turned over, which will probably be happening over the course of the next few years for the most part, I do wonder if that will be it for Cashman. I do wonder if this team, this particular Yankees team and this particular Yankees core is going to be his last one because I have to figure, I mean, obviously we're, you know, we're, we're talking about big hypotheticals that we have, you know, they're dependent on a million different um, future occurrences, but I do wonder if he would have the, the stomach, the strength, the desire, whatever you want to call it to find the next contending core of this Yankees team. If it doesn't end up being the Aaron judge, Garrett Cole, led group that it currently is and of course that that team isn't necessarily you know it's not like this is their last chance to do anything they still have at least i think would i would think a few more years to try to make something happen but i would not be surprised by that point because by that point cashman will have been in charge of this team for nearly 25 years and and will have been working for them even longer i would not be surprised if by that point he's just he says you know what let me let me give this challenge over to someone else and and move on for for now or at least move into a more senior kind of advisor role that has far less day-to-day responsibilities or far fewer rather how much of a contract do you think he got when he first uh, got promoted to oh i have no clue. i mean i'm sure that number is out there somewhere but i i would oh i got know. it for you john okay three hundred thousand dollars look at one year contract three hundred thousand dollars he was the second youngest general manager in history when he got hired in 98 mm-hmm. and he's still only 54. Um, so I'm sorry, Cashman's been doing this for already nearly 25 years. By the time this yes. horror and its and its kind of last pieces are probably ready to go, he'll be approaching 30 years at the helm of one team. And I That's I cannot remember. There's I don't think there I can't imagine what number two in terms of tenure in the sport is right now. It's probably someone who has only been hmm. there like I I not no, you know what I, who who it almost certainly is is um depending on how you want to count tenure is Dayton Moore in, in Kansas City. True. But and regardless, like, yeah, that, yeah. that kind of longevity also does not really exist anymore, in part because I think front offices are, are just more more used to poaching. And also just because I don't think I, I, it's just kind of hard to imagine one one front office and one person's kind of brain trust being the one that is just there forever. Part of, I think, what would help cash in that stability is, you know, the success he had, but also because he was early to a lot of the things that are now very commonplace in, in front offices and in the way they think and the way they operate. So, you know, that that, too, has helped him stay there is that he was always ahead of the game. The game more or less just caught up to him. Absolutely. Um, so, John, I don't know if I have a firm grasp on what's going on and what Major League Baseball is seeking to cut. So there was a big Twitter storm last night about uh, the latest in negotiations that are still just quite bad. And I think pitchers and catchers were supposed to report today. Pitchers and uh, catchers were supposed to be in reporting this week. Obviously that's yeah. not happening. So that's not happening, which is not fun. Don't enjoy that. Um, but they're looking to cut minor league pay- playing jobs and there has been a lot of different perspectives and I've read a lot of different pieces, but like John, how would you characterize what's going on and what baseball throughout here for folks that are trying to figure out what this means, especially for minor league baseball that has just been hit so hard as of the last couple of years. And they just continue to be in just a really tough spot and major league baseball, not seemingly throwing them a lifeline. Yeah. I, I mean, the way that the league has, has treated minor league players, and is obviously not a new thing, has always been a disgrace. They are paid 
subsist. Uh, they are paid subsistence wage, barely above, barely subsistence wages. Most of them do not even make close to that. They live in poverty for all intents and purposes. Uh, they are not a union. They're not part of any union, which means they have no power to uh, in, in really have any say over their working conditions, over how they are treated. Um, within, obviously, as you mentioned, the last few years, we've had a consolidation of the minor leagues with a bunch of teams just removed, a bunch of others uh, kind of moved over into a different league affiliation status. Some of them became just simple independent league teams. Others obviously got shifted over to uh, as part of this new collegiate summer wooden bat league that was supposed to replace a lot of the short season teams that got eliminated. Uh, obviously none of this has ever been done with the minor leaguer with the minor league player in mind. This has never been about their benefit their you know, and about their production, their ability to progress. This has only ever been a, a financial thing about limiting and reducing the amount of money that major league teams and major league baseball itself, uh, wants to spend on minor league baseball because they want to cut corners and, and cut costs wherever they can. And like I said, because minor leaguers have no union, they essentially have no voice in this process they can have things done to them more or less unilaterally. What had come up recently was in in combination with an earlier um, part of an MLB. I don't know if it was an MLB proposal or just an MLB belief. I don't know what the difference is, I guess, that they should not have to pay spring uh, minor leaguers during spring training, which is just beyond. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, but the, the new the new wrinkle was that in conjunction with the uh, players union proposal that teams only be allowed to option players a certain number of times in a season that there'd be a hard cap on how many times you can be sent down to the minors that in conjunction with that, what major league baseball had asked for in exchange was okay, we'll give you that. If you let us reduce the number of minor league players in total, currently every team is allowed to have up to as many as 180 major league baseball wanted to cut that number down to about 150. So we're talking 30 players or so a team, obviously that amounts to about close, just under a thousand, some players, but when you consider how little these guys make over the course of a season, we're talking a savings for each team of roughly $500,000 to maybe a million bucks in some cases. That's pennies. Pennies for guys already making pennies. And not just guys already making pennies, but the guys who are ostensibly a part of, who are ostensibly potential players for you. I know that there's a lot been said about, you know, consolidating the miners is really about making the miners more efficient, which should be no surprise given that this was all the brainchild of Jeff Luno and was readily uh, seized upon by his lieutenants in now in Baltimore and Milwaukee in Mike Elias and David Stearns, you know, as wanting to have a more efficient minor league system where players could be uh, produced and essentially produced and where player development could be done in a more controlled fashion. Again, what that amounts to is just they just want to play pay fewer players because ask any player development group in baseball for any of the 30 teams. That's anyone who's ever done any level of player development in professional in professional baseball. They will tell you that for as good as they have gotten at this and, the, and player development now is probably the best it has ever been in the history of the sport. It's still really hard and you still miss guys left and right. Guys come out of nowhere sometimes. And. I would imagine that if teams were to cut 30 minor leaguers apiece, they would just cut their 30 most kind of roster filling guys. Every, every organization has a number of minor leaguers who really are not there because they, they have any real uh, ceiling or any real, you know, they're not, they're not prospects. They're just guys to take up roster spots because you need them there. You need them there mm-hmm. as bench players. You need them there as relievers. You need them, whatever they happen to be. But there's nothing to say that those guys can't become prospects. That in the that in the course of their playing careers and in the course of being part of a player development system, that they can't become something too. 
what you're basically doing is taking you're taking away jo- not just jobs but opportunities for a thousand guys to save a grand total of a million dollars a team if even that again i don't I only have as much specifics as we got reported. Jeff Passan was was the one who who broke this as kind of as, as part of MLB's latest non-proposal proposal, which it should also be noted MLB's latest proposal, which came in over Super Bowl weekend, one that Rob Manfred in his press conference at the owners meetings last Thursday in Orlando had said would be the quote unquote good offer, which then raises the which then implies that all the offers previous to that were bad offers. But in this offer, I think, you know, we've seen and we'll talk about it, I think, too, a little later. They've you know, there seems to be some agreement on some smaller stuff, but on the key major financials, the league is really not moving. You know, part of this was raising the CBT threshold, uh, the current competitive balance tax slash luxury tax, whatever you want to call it. It's re- it really is for all intents and purposes, a luxury tax, raising that threshold, which has been pretty static over the last few years and which the last CBA adjusted year by year, only only incrementally adjusting that to a point where it is neither giving team basically the CB basically a a recap or repeat of what they did in the last CBA, which was we will raise the threshold, but only a little bit. It's not going to keep pace with inflation and the penalties are actually going to get worse. Uh, Again, this is what is, and this is, I think part and parcel of what MLB strategy this this whole time has been, which is that these offers are not serious. They are, they do not, they neither, reflect a financial world that is real that they don't reflect the financial reality that baseball exists in or that the players exist in they don't engage really in any kind of good faith with what the players are seeking they propose minute changes or tweaks that don't really address the the substance of the issue and they are very clearly just designed to keep stalling to just keep stalling to keep wasting time and to keep pushing us to the point where i believe the owners and the league are, are in the belief that eventually the players will simply crack that the upcoming opening day, that the loss of spring training games, the loss of whatever money comes with that, you know, any potential delay that players, particularly the, the less compensated players are going to say, Hey, I can't not keep getting checks. I need my money. We need to just take whatever offer they've got and just go back to playing baseball. That is what the owners have tried to do every single CBA negotiation since the beginning of time. I don't think that the owners understand, though, that this particular group of players is simply not interested in this, that they have been they have had this happen too many times, that they are in particular are absolutely infuriated with the way Rob Manfred and the league has treated them with the way that they've handled these negotiations, with the way that they have made every step of this process as difficult, laborious and bitter as can be. There doesn't this this does not seem to be an at any level of good faith negotiation between two parties because one side one party simply doesn't want to engage in them to the point where I, I do wonder if major league players are starting to wonder why they're making offers at all because it really does feel like they are bargaining against themselves at this point every proposal they put out the owners either ignore or act as if it or 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 send a proposal back that barely addresses the issues that the players have raised when it, and, and this is primarily the case with all the financial stuff i think all this stuff it's funny all the stuff around the game itself like i said as we're going to talk about it's pretty easy for these two sides to agree on i think there really doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, a lot of space between the two sides when it comes to stuff like the universal dh beyond what beyond whether creating the universal dh means that the player should give up something in return you know just the idea of what these things how these things have value as leverage but when it comes to the financial stuff, it is really clear that the league is just not interested 
in anything other than than the status quo, if not taking it backwards in some places, and is only engaging in this as needed in order to make it seem as if they are working in good faith, but simply are not. And I made the point online that this is basically the way private equity firms run newspapers. You just cut to the bone and you don't really care about about the, the newspaper itself, about the reporters, about what it means, what a newspaper means to a community, what reporters mean to a newspaper, how newspapers. None of that stuff ever really seems to come into the equation when it comes to private equity firms. The only thing they care about is how can we make the profit margins bigger? And baseball has pretty much, I mean, it's always been this way, but in particular under Manfred, the the mindset does seem to be how can we make the most money possible at the cheapest possible cost. And the minor leaguer thing really does get into that because you are basically saying you, minor league player, have no value to us in Major League Baseball aside from what you are worth when you start playing. What you think about the sport, how much you care about this, anything you anything about the sport itself is so secondary and subservient to the financial gains that the sport is supposed to create for these owners that I genuinely believe they do not care about anything else at this point. That the Rob Manfred doesn't care. There probably is some kind of schism to a certain degree within ownership between the small teams and the big teams, because I think they want somewhat different financial things. But I think ultimately what this ends up, what, what this is all end up playing, ended up playing out as is a group of a group of already very rich people who've decided that they no longer have any interest in spending the anything above the absolute bare minimum and fighting as hard as they can to entrench that bare minimum to make it so that it can basically never be changed. I mean, this is this is, I think, what they want ultimately is for the CBA just to make this stuff ironclad, that they, the players will never be able to, to want to challenge the financial structure of the game again. And that this is really all they care about. It's just we're just going to make our money and the hell with everything else. It's really sad. And it's really it is a really damning kind of, I think, summation of how Rob Manfred's MLB works, that this is first and foremost not just first and foremost, because it, it has been this, it has been first and foremost, but it is purely entirely a business. It is a business. It is not a sport. It's not a league. It is not about the games that get played or the hunk of metal that gets handed out, as Manfred called it the other, a year or so ago. It's about the money. And that is all this negotiation is. And so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that we still are where we are, because, again, if the owners only want to keep the status quo and have no interest in spending more than they have to, then they're never going to budge off this stuff. And I, I, it just it, the feeling I get is just more and more pessimistic because it is very, very clear there is no common ground to be found here financially, and that the owners will only accept the the player proposals either with the exchange of something like, okay, fine, then we get to get rid of a bunch of minor leaguers and you don't get any say over that, or they're just going to say, no, no, we won't do that, and if you don't like it, well, see how long you like going without without game checks, and and then and then get back to us. I'm going to read you a quote. Do you remember Manfred's press conference he had after the owners meeting in Florida? What he said about the stock market? Yes, about how. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, 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 yeah, you should you should do the the whole quote. Okay, so this is and this was something that um, we were talking before uh, the season got locked out because um, I think I was I was saying I was like I just I think Major League Baseball is totally fine um, taking this taking taking time off take losing games really digging their toes and like the fact that it got so ugly um in 2020 um i don't know i just felt like the this was this was inevitable and that rob manfred was not the the leader who was going to uh remedy these fences between both sides 
And it could not have been more clear when you when you listen to this quote where it's like, I I just I can't imagine being doing this job and caring any less about this sport that millions of people love. And you're just you just just do something else, Rob Manfred. Like just do something else. It's it's like when owners complain about certain things of like how much money they'll get when they sell or they're losing money. It's like just sell the team, make your money and do something else. If that's your goal, you've missed the point. Um, But his actual quote, um, he said, we actually hired a, an investment banker, a really good one, actually, to look at that very issue. Um, If you look at a purchase price of franchises, the cash that's put in during the period of ownership, and then what they've sold for, Historically, the return on those investments is below what you would get in the stock in the stock market. Hey. What you'd expect to get in the stock market with a lot more risk, which is just what I, I, it is such a blatant, stupid lie. It's it's one of those lies where you just sit there and you're like, do you really think everyone assembled is this stupid? <laughs> like he, it, it is so clear how little respect he has, particularly for baseball media. How mm-hmm. very little respect he has for reporters. Because he just went up there and he blatantly lied. That is a complete no- that is complete nonsense. Just on the very surface, if owning a major league baseball team were riskier than simply investing money in the stock market, why on earth would anyone buy a major league baseball? Team? <laughs> why? Uh, you, it cost Steve or Steve. It cost Steve Cohen over a billion dollars to buy the Mets. Why would he have done that if that were a worse investment than simply throwing his money into the stock market? He didn't just do it because he's a big Mets fan and he wanted to be the Mets owner, although that was probably a really big part of it. He did it because these teams make money hand over fist. Team valuations do nothing but go up. Jeffrey Loria bought the Marlins when he did for roughly $800 million. He sold them for twice that price to to the Derek Jeter group. Are you really going to tell me he did not make money off buying a team? Mm-hmm. And that was the Marlins. It was like he was just talking to other billionaires where it was it was just something that was so out of touch with reality that I just it's like it's, you said, it, it's so out of touch with reality that the only way to understand it is that he's lying because otherwise yeah. Rob Manford is one of the stupidest people on the face of the earth and will just take whatever is being told to him at complete face value. He's not that stupid. He's I don't but think he is going to do what the owners want. And but he is going to do what the owners yeah. want, and that includes standing up in front of a bunch of reporters and lying his ass off about how owning a major league team actually is not <laughs> profitable, despite the very obvious evidence we have from every team in baseball that buying a major league baseball team is basically the same as buying a money printer. Mm-hmm. Like again, the another one the, the 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 consortium that owns the Red Sox, led by John Henry and Tom Warner, bought the team in two thousand. 2002, I believe, 2002, 2003, right around there, 2002, for roughly 700 some million dollars. If they were to turn around today and put the Boston Red Sox, and not just the Boston Red Sox, but all of the properties and groups that they've created alongside the Red Sox, obviously Fenway Sports Group, um, the land itself that Fenway Park is built on, and that the course has insanely high value, they would probably clear uh, a sale of two or three billion dollars without even trying. That's probably a low estimate for what you could what you would expect the Red Sox to be sold for. No owner, not a single owner in Major League Baseball, if they turned around today and put their team up for sale, would not make money. It is just such a f- stupid, offensive lie that it really does just expose how little, like you said, this is about baseball and how much these people just do not care about baseball itself. 
It is purely about the money, and they will say whatever it takes to defend their status quo of uh, baseball actually makes us poor. The players are stealing all our money. We do. We need protection. It's it's nonsense. It's nonsense. And the fact that they just the fact that Manfred is willing to lie on such an easily disproven thing, and so blatantly and so publicly, it really does just make it clear that they they, they don't care. They do not care. The people, the owners do not care because they understand when you have a monopoly like they do, no one can really tell you otherwise. Where are we as baseball fans going to go? Where are the players going to go? They don't have any other option. We're stuck with this. So they they figure, well, okay, well, we dictate the terms. You guys, players can't go, can't go join another league, although I guess theoretically they could. Fans don't have another Major League Baseball sitting around to watch. So we can just sit here and lie and say that actually buying a baseball team loses us money, and that's why we need to make sure the players don't make more money because we're losing money, even though, again, we're also talking about a group of people who are obscenely wealthy beyond all imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really going to tell me that the Rick, the Ricketts family, number one, one of the richest families in the country, and number two, that's developing every piece of land that they possibly can around Wrigley is, is doing financially poorly on that team. Are you serious? It's like one of those things where it's like there's a difference between not doing as well as you would like and also not doing extremely well. Those are two very, very different. And that's, things. I mean, that's, that's part of I mean, that, that's part of the great, the larger society we live in. It's just that the mm-hmm. level of. I mean, like I said, there's a reason I brought up the, the journalism private equity. I was going to say, yeah, that's how we bring it back. It's like they're just not doing as well as they would like. Yes, and, that, like, and that's the thing. Like, there's no way to argue. Our newspaper is profitable. Eh, it depends. It's certainly not as it's certainly not as cut and dry as it is with like owning a baseball team or something. But it's not hard to get a newspaper to a point where it's profitable enough, where mm-hmm. it makes enough money to support itself, to support its staff, to to continue to exist, just doing its own thing. The problem that the journalism has run into is the same problem that so many other industries have run into, which is, like you said, the people who own it just simply want more. And because that there is no one essentially to tell them, no, you can't do that, aside from our very, very weak in public sector unions and private sectors, too, I suppose, they just they could just do it. And I think that's what you're seeing with the owners is that they have collectively decided and maybe not as collective. I think there probably are some owners within that group who maybe are not so keen on this particular path, but regardless they don't get enough power in this in this scenario i think they've just decided that these are our terms we want to make more money and because you guys can't do anything else accept them or leave that's what you get and that's why that's how you end up with 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 rob manfred up there lying because he knows he knows there's no he knows there's no defensible position for this mlb isn't even advocating for anything there's nothing in these negotiations that that actually really has anything to do with the sport itself like i said all the stuff around the sport seems both easily agreed upon and pretty easily implemented. It really purely just is about the money. And when, when it is about the money and when you don't really have any defensible positions for it being about the money, that's how you just have to go up there and just lie like that. Because what else is Rob Manfred going to say? If he comes out there to that question and says, no, actually owning a baseball team is extremely valuable. It's a really great way to make money. It's way better than investing in the stock market. That kind of kind of exposes the whole game right there, doesn't it? He's got to pretend that this is a money losing enterprise for owners, because otherwise, what is the, what is the the justification for all the financial proposals MLB has put out where they have barely budged on where things currently are? There isn't. He knows that the owners know that they know that they can just throw their weight around on this and figure that as it's happened in previous years, that the, the players union is both too fractured and too poorly led in order to do anything about it. I just think that they're going to have a very nasty surprise when it turns out that the players perhaps more than ever are united on on putting an end to this or on the very least on stopping this 
this attempt by the owners to kind of solidify this this financial status quo with whatever powers that the players have. And I do think eventually we do reach the point where it it will just be a strike. I mean, I know it is a lockout. It is not a strike. But I think we do just reach the point where the players say, that's it. You know, that this is pointless. This is stupid. We are making offers essentially against ourselves that are not being taken seriously, that are not being responded to seriously. These negotiations are being are going nowhere. And I, I really do. I And I think that's also part of MLB's playbook is to get to the players to the point where they basically publicly say we're done so that then the owners can turn around and say, see, it's the players. They don't want to play ball. We've made offers, but they don't want to take part. It's their fault. I don't know how any of that plays out, but the last week or two of baseball labor negotiation news has been really, really bleak. Um, I know I said, but I don't before, think it ends well. Like I just, I don't think this no, ends well. I think we I lose games ends. for sure. I think, and, I think at least we lose a month. I've, I've been on that from the very beginning. I've seen absolutely nothing to suggest that it's anything less. In fact, I'm starting to think we're, we're, we're getting closer to losing like two months at this point. I don't know how this problem is solved at this point because this is not minor disagreements over whether or not we get the DH. You know, this is which really, shout out to that. I'm yeah. Really excited for that. Jorge Soler in the DH spot for 160 <laughs> games. Let's go. Mets are thrilled. Um, mm-hmm. But no, this this is these are these are significant financial issues that one side has shown no desire to move on. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what you do. I don't know how you fix that. I really don't. Mark Appel, I think it's he pronounced it Appel, right? Was it? I think it's Mark Appel, yes. Um, good follow on Twitter, but he had a really good uh, Twitter thread about how to fix minor league baseball and the things that Major League Baseball should look to implement. I'm not going to run through all of it because um, it's a lot of stuff, but I would highly encourage folks to listen to minor league baseball players who went through it and can tell you firsthand what went up, what's going on, why this is a problem, and how Major League Baseball can work to remedy the situation. Yeah, and, so. and just, to, just to tie back to where we started, like it mm-hmm. is... The, a disgrace beyond all disgrace is the way major league baseball treats minor league players. Like you read their stories and these are guys who are just, they are trying to make ends meet in the most brutal, vicious ways possible because major, minor league baseball simply does not pay at any level. It does not pay enough for you to, for that to be your job, to be your career. All these guys want to do is be, is be baseball players. All they want to do is play the sport and major league baseball at every turn makes it harder for them. To the point where it has made it impossible for so many of these guys. Who knows how many careers we've lost simply because these guys are not being paid even poverty level wages. It, it is it is a disgrace from a sport that proclaims that this, you know, make way for the kids or whatever the stupid slogan is. And about how how can you not be romantic about baseball? The national pastime. Bullshit. They don't care. The way they treat minor leaguers, the way they've treated this entire negotiation progress is proof enough that all that stuff is is. To, to use a delightful baseball term, it's eyewash. It's 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 performative nonsense. All the league cares about is how little it can pay these people in order to make the most money possible. Again, for a sport that has seen record revenues every single year for the last 15 years. Every year is a new revenue record. I'm not 100% sure if that's the case with the 2020 COVID season or the 2021 second COVID season. But regardless, baseball is a very, very rich sport and one that only gets richer. You know, it's not like the TV contracts are going to get smaller from here on out. I would agree. Um, in a little bit happier news, uh, Austin Meadows could be leaving the Tampa Bay race. They could be open to trading Mr. Austin Meadows. What uh, What do you think the value is? Uh, and and what, what do you think the, the line of thinking is, if you're Tampa Bay, why you want to 
move Austin Meadows when baseball presumably returns? And also, what do you think a package might look like for him? And who do you think makes the most the most sense potentially? So uh, to me, the reason for moving in the value is kind of the same is that Meadows has shown himself to be, you know, for as talented as he is, he's a very talented player that he is pretty easy platoon bat. He really just can does not hit left handers very well. You're always going to need to platoon against lefties. So he's a strong side of a platoon, which at least he's the strong side. He's also not very great defensively. He's, you know, he's been a pretty average challenge guy. It's just in terms of making contact. And I feel like that's always going to be the case. And certainly as a left-handed swinger, you always worry too about what the shift does and stuff like that. And he's a guy who's not really had very good injury um, health. You know, he's always had a kind of a lot of injury issues. I have to imagine in the Rays case, this is, I mean, who knows if this is something the Rays actually want to do. You know what I mean? If this is something that they, if this is something that just got floated out there is, you know, if they're looking at guys on their roster and thinking, hey, if there's a guy whose value or whose perceived value probably sur- like surpasses his actual value on that roster, Austin Meadows is probably one of the better ones. He's still a very big, he's a named guy, obviously, um, you know, former top prospect, former top 10 pick. He has played very well when he's been on the field and healthy. And I think, too, the Rays probably realize there are a fair number of teams, especially now with if we do get the universal DH, which we are going to get the universal DH, uh, there are a number of teams that could use some help both at that position and at cor- and at the corner outfield. And I think, you know, when we talk about Seiya Suzuki in a little bit, you know, we're going to get to that same place is that there are some contenders that could use that corner outfield kind of DH role help mm-hmm. that Meadows is, is probably best suited for. And I'd, I'd say he's definitely and definitely, too, he is aside from Suzuki, who obviously has not proven anything at the major league level. Oh, we'll get into him because there's a really good piece on you guessed it, folks fangraphs.com go become a subscriber if you've not already done so i just want to do it in an asmr voice because i'm a big asmr guy but anyway back to what you're saying john but i also have to imagine too that with with meadows it also is the fact that he is younger and almost and this and very much so going to be cheaper than the two best options in terms of of corner outfielders available in the market not just younger and cheaper but also simply i think better overall than Nick Castellanos and and Michael Conforto. You know, those are really the two big names left in the outfielder market. Two guys who I imagine will be signed very quickly after the lock, whenever it is the lockout ends. So I do wonder if this is something where the Rays are kind of cons- are wondering, hey, there are probably going to be there there are definitely going to be teams that don't get in on Castellanos or Conforto and probably miss out on Suzuki slash maybe he's not interested in them. Maybe Meadows is a guy we can start floating around to be like, hey, if you need a corner outfielder who can mash righties, we got just the guy for you. <laughs> Plus, I, I imagine, as is the case with everything with the Rays, that, you know, it, actually, it's funny. This is not even really like a salary thing with the Rays. He's not. That's what I'm Austin saying. Meadows like, isn't gonna be, he's yeah. only just now become arbitration eligible. But I guess that is the other part of it with the Rays is that over the next three years, his salary is going to get progressively more expensive. And that if there is a time to move on, this is probably the ideal window to move him because you can still sell a team on, hey, you've got three more years of team control left with him at pretty reasonable prices. But for the Rays, it's, hey, we've only got three more years of this guy and he's only going to keep getting more expensive year over year. And our farm system produces corner outfield bats like, well, like like they just were like, like a farm produces corn. So that's the other thing. Meadows is not a guy who's irreplaceable there. I think is the other part of it. I think that they probably yeah. identified that corner outfield DH type bat as one that they can very easily find either within their system or for cheap somewhere else. So you might as well see what you can get for Meadows on the open market, especially if you do think, hey, three years time, this guy's gone anyway, and we're only going to have to keep paying more to keep him. 
let, let's see what we can, let's see what's out there. Let's see what we can get. Maybe we can turn that into a few prospects and just kind of, it's a very raised system. You know, that Meadows has reached the point where he's, like I said, his perceived value is now potentially as surpassed his actual value to that team. I also, uh, I just, I feel like there's some things where it's like, there's teams where if I was put on the trade block in my prime by that team, I'm like, do I need to ponder if I'm playing the right sport? Where like the Rays, you're you're cheap with the Rays, and you're this high upside, uh, high upside guy theoretically at 26. You're just now arbitration eligible, all this good stuff, and you're like, wait, I'm on the market. Oh no, what what does this mean? Like if the Rays don't want me, I'm like the most Rays player possible for them right now. Well, that's um, the thing is, be, being a very yeah. Rays player means eventually you will no longer be a Rays player because being a Rays player just means you are young and cheap and can play six different positions. Unless time. you're Mr. Franco. Unless you're Mr. Franco. And that's the thing. Like, it, it's mm-hmm. one thing when it's Wander Franco because a guy who's got like 80, 80 grades on his tools <laughs> and is projected to be already one of the 25 best players in baseball. Yeah, you yeah. build around that. Austin Meadows, who's a perfectly fine corner outfielder who doesn't hit lefties and is kind of defensively challenged and has injury issues. That's not a dude. Oh, my God. I could see him being a DH in Atlanta if we don't bring back Solaire, I, which I have mixed feelings about. Because guess what? Do you want to guess where Austin Meadows is from, Mr. John Taylor? He is from some small town in Georgia alongside Clint Frazier. Oh, OK. So fun fact. My dad coached Clint Frazier um, back in the day for a season. He played with my brother, uh, younger brother. And Clint Frazier, still the the biggest arms I've seen in person, like from one per- like He has Clint very Frazier. four arms. It, it's everything, John. He looks like um, Jax from Mortal Kombat in person. But, like, imagine Mortal Kombat in person, Jax, but, like, not the same, like, chest area. It's like yeah. this man was only doing curls for 17 years. And Glenn Frazier working on the glamour muscles feels right to me. That, that scans. I, uh, because I'm a dork, John, I remember I was at the mall one time and I, uh, I was, walk- I don't remember why I, I, I worked at the mall a lot when I was growing up and I, I love the mall. I miss the mall, big mall rats guy. Um, the mall was a great place and it's dead, but before it died, I used to go to the mall and I, uh, I remember I walked by this guy who had those Python arms, like the crazy arms. And I just, I stopped. You give you the tickets to the gun show. He did. He did. But he was also wearing a Cleveland Cavaliers Kyrie Irving jersey, just the jersey, nothing under it, anything like that, like just full on. And I had turned and I was like, that's some strong red curly hair. And he was with an older woman. And I turned and I was like, she turned around, too, because she picked up on me noticing him because no one else. Baseball players kind of live in anonymity like they're not like basketball players or football players. Yeah, or whatever. Unless you're unless you're Aaron Judge, you don't really stand out. Right. So I I looked over and I I, I was like, is that? Clint Frazier and the mom. It turned out to be his mom because I looked it up later, and she was like, "That's Clint Frazier," and it was one of the funniest things. She called her son. It was a proud moment. So I gave her gave her that, but I was like, "Is that Clint Frazier? That has to be Clint Frazier. No one else looks like that." Um, but yeah, Austin Meadows played at Grayson High School. Um, Clint played at Loganville. Loganville uh, incorporates both of them. Wayne Gallman, the running back for Clemson and everything else in Kimbichi, all in the same pipeline. Fun fact too. Loganville is right down 78 where I grew up in Lilburnstone Mountain, Georgia, John. So Grayson was it's a all, big rival. It's all connected. So what I'm saying, ultimately, this is a roundabout way of saying it's time to bring Austin Meadows home. It's time to bring him back. I mean, you know, that'll happen eventually. It is the the destiny and fate of every Georgia <laughs> baseball player at some degree or another. If they did grow up as Braves fans mm-hmm. end up playing for the Atlanta Braves. It'd be nice. I was hoping for Buster Posey. That was like my one I was really excited about. If we ever got a DH, like bring in Buster Posey in here to be uh, 
to be the DH, but that did not happen, John. Um, let's talk about that uh, before we get into our Oakland A's season review, which is going to be delightful and very, very positive and uplifting. Um, Mr. Suzuki, there was a really great piece, uh, piece rather that uh, I alluded to earlier on this very podcast, but John uh, comes from our friend, friend of the pod, Mr. Dan Sombrowski on Mr. Suzuki, who you've talked about um, and some like people are excited about what this guy can be, um, what uh, what to make of him, because you have guys like Conforto and Castellanos on the market um, and folks are just kind of curious to see what kind of contract he gets, what kind of player he's going to be in Major League Baseball. Um, Zip suggested a five year, eighty three million dollar contract for him. Um, what do you, what do you think? What, what have you seen based on hit the, the piece here by Sombrowski? What, uh, what excites you about Mr. Suzuki? What, uh, gives you pause? Give us, give us the rundown, John. So with the full caveat that I've never seen Seiya Suzuki play, I, I don't watch NPB. I'm not familiar with him just on a, on a purely visual level in, in reading Dan's fees, Dan's piece. The thing that definitely stands out is the power he showed in NPB, um, Interestingly, one thing that didn't come up was a defense. I imagine part of that is there's just no real reliable defensive metrics for for Japanese baseball. But the fact that, you know, Dan is referring to him as a corner outfielder DH type suggests that Suzuki is not really the kind of guy you're going to want to plug in center field or that you may not even feel comfortable with as a full time defensive corner outfielder. But if nothing else, he definitely seems to bring power at a relatively good age and what is probably going to be a pretty decent contract because, you know, aside from. Uh, the superstar level guys like Hideki Matsui and Daisuke Matsuzaka and and obviously now um, Shohei Otani. But, but even Otani didn't command that. I mean, part of that is his age. But, you know, you're not going to be talking about the kind like the a Matsui or a Matsuzaka or a, or a Masahiro Tanaka deal. You know, Dan said 583. I would guess that it would probably be something in the neighborhood of four years with an average AAV with an AAV of like somewhere in that 13 to $15 million range, you know, add, add on top of that, whatever the posting fee is required by, um, I forget already the name of his team off the top of my head. The thing is, what, what definitely stands out to me about Suzuki is the idea that past Conforto and Castellanos, there aren't really, there is not really much available on the corner outfield market. You know, at that point, you're starting to get more into kind of backup options or you're starting to get into guys who just, I mean, even Castellanos on his own is just defensively such a mess that, you know, he's really a corner outfielder. You know, of, of that group, I think Conforto is probably the best defender there. But even there, there's a lot of there's a lot of unsurety about, you know, what his defensive metrics or what his defensive numbers and, and ability might be. So I think what Suzuki does offer is that ability to, you know, he's obviously he's a good, he's a corner outfielder with good power, decent enough defense, decent enough speed. You know, enough to be what looks like on the surface, at least as like a two to three war guy. And given the relative dearth of those players on the market, you know, I think that's obviously what makes him the most intriguing. And also the fact that there's still a good number of contenders that could use that kind of corner outfield help. I mean, Philadelphia and Boston both came up prominently in Dan's article. Uh, Cincinnati did as well. But of course, I don't think Cincinnati is going to be spending money. Oakland, who we're going to mention, another team that almost certainly will not be spending money, but they could use the corner outfield help. This um, is the year, John. Folks are saying that this is this is the year that uh, the Oakland A's, they're going to really dip into the free agent market. This is the year, people are saying. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see what Suzuki kind of brings to the table in terms of, you know, just who he is. Because again, I'll be really interested to see, like, for me, it's always just interested to see, like, what they do against, um, against American competition. Because it's, 
you know, I, ideally in previous years, we probably or in if there hadn't been COVID, we probably would have seen Suzuki in what the most recent WBC would have been, um, presumably. I mean, the other question is, you know, how long does the lockout need to last before Suzuki just decides I'm going to return to Japan for another season? Yeah. And then try my luck again next year. Is there a deadline for that? I don't know. So I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. Although I do know NPB does start within the next about six weeks or so. So hmm. that decision does need to be made soon. Um, and I because don't know if it guess can what? be Baseball won't be resolved CBA. in six weeks. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think that's coming in the so next six weeks. That, of course, is a major issue there that significantly uh, complicates things. But I would I mean, obviously, any guy, any player who puts up the kind of numbers he did in Japan would love to see what they're capable of doing against against major league pitching and in the major leagues in general. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what he would potentially bring to the table. I'm I am curious though, you know, if any team is going to be able to get him signed, you know, in enough time. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I, I'm curious. Give us a pick. Who do you think makes the most sense? Who do you think gives him that kind of deal that Dan laid out? Who do you think is the most likely team to give him that? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think Boston probably because they have not. Huh. I think they either. I think Boston, because as as Dan noted, their depth chart beyond Alex Verdugo and. um, God, I'm just I'm blanking on. Well, the, I mean, the, the Boston outfield beyond Alex Verdugo is does Jackie Bradley and, you know, uh, Rob Ref Snyder and Jaron Duran and former Tigers prospect oh. Kristen Stewart. Like there, there's not. There's not a great level of depth in the Boston outfield. He makes a ton of sense there, even if I imagine there might be some discomfort about being about signing a guy who's literally never played one day in the major leagues. Be hey, okay, welcome to Boston. There is mm-hmm. the 37 foot tall wall you were gonna have to deal with every single game you play <laughs> here at home. Uh, have fun with that. But I mean, I think the only other realistic option I, I see, at least you know, barring another team getting involved, but that, you know, most, I think most of the good contenders are pretty well set in the outfield. The only other contender I think that really has a significant outfield problem is Philadelphia. Where I was just about to say Philadelphia. Where beyond Bryce Harper, I don't really think there's anyone in that outfield you can count on. My question would just be how much Philly is willing to spend. I also do wonder if a Japanese player would be all that interested in, you know, if his only options are two East Coast teams. You know, I know a lot of Japanese players in the past have had a preference for playing on the West Coast. Otani did, didn't he? Sorry, Otani. Yes, Otani only. I believe Otani's preference was a West Coast team, which is why how it came down to Seattle versus the Angels. Um, Obviously, you know that's not always the case. Matsui and Tanaka obviously were more than happy to take the the money from the Yankees to play in New York. Kawakami. Did we really? Did we really just reference Munenori Kawasaki? Are we talking about Munenori? Are we talking about? Oh, I'm talking about uh, Mr. Atlanta Brave Kawakami. Oh, okay. Did you forget about Mr. Atlanta Brave Kawakami? I did forget about him, but he was uh, wearing the legendary number eleven for the Atlanta Braves. A legendary um, number, truly. Yes, Kenshin Kawakami, man, he's forty six yes, now. I, I I would wager that one of Boston or Philadelphia would probably be. Uh, and those just feel you don't think right San Francisco? You don't think San Francisco is an option? Eh, they need a field I, help. I mean, I I think that they would rather. Excuse me, I think they'd rather find the help in what they already have. But no, I, I mean, I'm sure San Francisco would also probably, I'm, I'm sure that there, you can, you can probably guess at least six to 12 teams that would probably end up being players for him who are in that kind of top end of the contender market. Cause Suzuki's what if the Dodgers also just do it. What if the Dodgers are just like, LOL, we're the Dodgers. I we're, could totally just- see it. Why not? Mm-hmm. But 
No, I, I think this is something where he's just going to end up with one of those kind of middle tier contenders because I don't, this is also not like a, a Tanaka Matsui situation. I think where this guy mm-hmm. is like a, a bona fide star from day one. I think this is something where you're probably going to get more of, like I said, like a two to three war outfielder like at the start, which is plenty good. Uh, I just don't think it's the kind of player that a big contending team moves heaven and earth in order to get. You know, that, that's why I just feel more confident saying it's a team that already has that hole, doesn't really have the internal depth or resources, is not interested in Castellanos or Conforto. And ultimately, it's just like, hey, well, it's either this or we, you know, we put some, you know, we cover Brett Gardner and like varnish and hope he makes it through the season. OK, man. Um, all right. Well, let's hit our Oakland Athletics portion of this podcast. They um, the bottom of the AOS was quite sad last year. John Very Taylor. depressing. Very depressing. Um, we're not even at the Angels yet, who uh, we'll see as they continue to be. Uh, they're they're not the most depressing. They're just the most frustrating that Otani and Mike Trout just continue. Trout, actually, I'm not throwing Trout in this anymore. Trout made his bed. I don't care anymore. Trout, um, you did this. You played yourself. This is you got your well, bag. He, he wanted he wanted to be in he wanted to be in Los Angeles long term. He likes being mm-hmm. with the Angels. He like yeah. At a certain point, it's like that's where he wants to be. There's not right. really a whole lot you can like. There's not really a whole lot you can even like infer that he just wants to be there, and that's. That That's is his fine. choice, and it's really it, it is just a shame because it means that Mike Trout will never play important games. He will never, yeah, play matter. Uh, and no, he probably will. It'll just be like the the thirty cents on the dollar Mike Trout at like age forty two or whatever. Like Mike Trout's gonna play an important role as a DH or something for the Red Sox or the that Phillies. So, yeah, that I could see down the line. Um, but John, what uh, what went right outside? I feel like the this the the case in point here is like Sterling Marte was great. I think that's yeah, the Oakland A's. Is great. Yeah. What else can um, we say about them right now? What would you do your season in review? What went right? What went wrong for the athletics? I mean, what went right ultimately is, I mean, they finished 10 games above 500, which again, for a team that spends as little money as the A's do, and that is as completely absent from free agency and any real major moves as the A's are still pretty impressive that you can just kind of cobble together this group of players and still end up above 500. I think the issue you run into is or the issue that they ran into is one that the bullpen, which has kind of been the thing that the playoff team, the playoff A's of the last few years had really, really kind of made their strength was the bullpen, their relievers, their ability to just like slam together four or five innings a night as needed with a bunch of kind of anonymous, no name, like hyper hard throwing big stuff guys that did not that was not there last year. And that team is really not that team is really not built to be able to survive something like that because they didn't. It's not a team that had a ton of either starting pitching depth or a ton of great starting pitching performances beyond uh, Frankie Montes. Once he got right, Sean Manet obviously had a great year. Chris Bassett up until he got knocked in the head uh, had a very very good season. Uh, and but otherwise, between that and an offense that was pretty much average, like there just wasn't there wasn't. Ultimately, there just was not enough firepower on the team really to do anything. And it does make you kind of appreciate the Oakland teams of the last few years. It's like, yeah, they they put it, that took every last drop of sweat for those teams to make the postseason. Because you can see once once the smallest things start to go wrong with that roster, it does not take a lot for them no longer to be a postseason team. And the unfortunate reality of it, I think of that is, is that, you know, once things start to go wrong for that team, it really doesn't take much for them to decide, OK, well, that's that. We're just going to try again <laughs> with a bunch of other cheap guys like three to four years in the future. Part of that, I think, is just the inevitable reality of, you know, they are coming to the end of the con- end of contracts for guys like Manea and particularly, most importantly, I think Matt Olson. Um, the He's backwards. Gone. Yes, he is. He is 100 percent gone. 
Uh, Matt Chapman has moved backwards in terms of his offense, which has been really, really uh, a really big problem for them that he has just not really hit the last two years. But I, the more I think what is important here is that the, this Oakland team is never going to spend money, shows no inclination to spend money, has an ownership group that just does not want to spend money, plays in the worst non-raised stadium in baseball. And I think you can probably make a decent argument that the Coliseum is worse in an area in where they have never been able to figure out the stuff about the new stadium, about where it might go, who was going to pay for it, any of that stuff. I really don't think that's I mean, at this point, we are just kind of counting down the days until they become the Las Vegas Raiders or the Las Vegas A's. And they just follow the path that the Raiders didn't leave Oakland. Mm-hmm. But and as part of that, I do think then if, if you want to be really cynical about it, then the 2021 A season review is this is the last time the people of Oakland are going to get a quality baseball team. Because I think what is going to happen, what we've already seen happen is that the A's are financially retrenching yet again. They're going to stop spending almost entirely. They're going to move whatever expensive veteran guys they have like Olsen and Manea and Bassett and, you know, maybe see if anyone wants to bite on Montes or, or whatever they have, whatever else they have. And basically just tread water financially until I believe until and, and who knows, but I believe until there is some level of solution or clarity with regards to where the A's are going to play baseball. And I do think who moves that, first, the Rays or the A's? I think first? the A's because I think the Rays are in a, just a tougher position because they are locked into that stadium deal with, mm-hmm. with St. Petersburg until I believe 2028 or 2032, somewhere in that range. I don't know what the exact stadium specifics are for the A's, but it, it does just feel too like there is just absolutely no appetite from anyone in the Bay Area anywhere to build a stadium and or accept the Oakland A's unless the proposal were tear down the Coliseum and build an entirely new stadium in its place. And I still think even then the A's would not be particularly interested because I imagine they would have to finance a lot of that themselves. I I really do wonder, you know, and we're seeing it. We saw it with the NFL, and I think we're going to see it with how things play out with the Rays and the A's. But I do wonder in an era where where public where municipalities, cities, towns, states, whatever, whatever level of government we're talking about are less and less interested in putting up public money to finance stadiums. What is going to happen to teams? I mean, we already see with Oakland and, and Tampa who have two uh, in very bad stadium situations where they've already unilaterally decided that they're not going to put up money themselves to do something that they want the city or the state that they're in to do something. And they've already been told no. So, you know, what's going to happen with them in terms of, you know, the, the dance used to work because you could find a city that would be willing to pay for everything to move you there. Is that really going to be the case nowadays? Is a team is a city like Las Vegas or Portland or Nashville, or whoever else, or Montreal. I get Montreal is a little bit tougher, but are any of those towns really going to go? Hey, come on in, Oakland. We'll we'll give you a place. We'll build you a stadium. We'll we'll do stuff for you. I don't think anyone wants to do that anymore. And so I do wonder kind of what the end game is now with the A's because I mean you're you're already seeing part of it is that they've decided screw it. We're just not going to try anymore, or at least yeah. we're going to stop trying for a few years because this particular core they don't feel like augmenting anymore. And they don't want to spend because their situation is such an entire is such a huge, utter mess that, yeah, I, I, I don't really know kind of what comes next for the A's at this point, because I think the only thing that's clear is that they're just not going to they're going to keep not spending money. I do wonder, though, if the if the ownership group of the A's and everyone involved with it has just kind of essentially given up and just and essentially just accepted like we're just we're just going to be here until the league lets us go somewhere else. So why put in any real effort to this anymore? Oh man, go A's, man. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, this is the go A's. Frustrating thing about all this is John Fisher, the man who owns the A's, the the, the guy who's in charge of Gap, the Gap rather. Is um, he really? I yes. Didn't know that. Yes. Uh, 
that dude does not lack for money, as you can probably imagine. This is mm-hmm. not something where the A's have like they're not some like community based team where they're they're scrimping by on every dollar. They they scrimp by on every dollar because that's how their ownership wants it. I just think that at this point, that ownership group, like the rest, like kind of portrait of ownership in miniature is that they no longer see the necessity or the reason to spend money for a team where, I mean, I think about all that has to go right for the A's just for them to make the playoffs as the things currently stand. You can pretty easily argue if the A's spent more money that they would not have to try as hard. But I do think that the particular formula that the A's are using is just one that I don't think the the ownership group itself is really interested in really doing anymore. I, part of me just kind of feels like A's ownership just doesn't care and would just prefer that the team simply kind of vanished into thin air at this point because the stadium situation and everything around that has kind of left them in this weird limbo where, you know, you, I mean, it's not, not to say that the, like, the, the, the stadium is the reason the A's can't spend. The, the reason the A's don't spend is because the A's don't want to spend. But I do think it has left them in a place where they're like, what exactly are we supposed to do with this team? We have a bad stadium, like in a place where we have bad attendance. We can't move anywhere in the immediate Bay Area without either spending a fortune or having to spend years doing, you know, trying to figure out uh, like land rights, environmental like usage, all that, all that very unfun, unpleasant stuff. I don't know. The the vibe you get off the A's is just that everyone involved is just kind of given up that, you know, that if they could have made it work with the group they had, great. But now that this group is kind of reaching their contractually defined ends, that the, that the ownership group is just kind of happy to let the A's just kind of float for a little bit. Maybe their farm system produces some guys. Maybe they have some young dudes who can make a difference. Maybe whatever they get back for Olsen and Manea and Bassett and whoever else they move can become the next great cheap A's team. But I do get the sense that at the very least, that ownership group probably doesn't care as much about what happens with them. And Oakland is probably kind of mentally moved on to, we're just going to be somewhere else at some point that I think it's similar to what the Rays have, that they just feel like where they are does not work anymore. And that there's no real reason to expend extra resources. If that's the case. Yeah. Well, go A's. Like I said, John, Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. To, like when you think about an A's season preview, it's like, what does it really matter? Ultimately, it's, they're not going to be a good team. They're not trying. There's no path move. to them being good. Like, there's just no path. The, the path to them being good would have been them spending the money that they've never spent. Yeah, it's not going to you know? happen. It's, the A's were always going to be one of those teams where it's like, uh, less so than the Rays, because the Rays have a much better player development and, and uh, system than, than Oakland does. But I think the idea with Oakland was always just, if it works on a, on a shoestring budget, great. If it doesn't work, well, it doesn't work. You know, but we're not going to spend any more to try to make it work. It either works under these particular circumstances or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, well, it doesn't. It's a very fatalistic Ooh. view. <laughs> what a what a what a positive episode this has been full of uppers. I mean, that's what happens when you have a when you have a lockout, when you have what we're we're dealing with. Baseball under a labor lawyer. Yeah, I mean we want it to be better. We don't want this to be the case. No, um, I mean, that's that's kind of the, that's the, what's been so frustrating about everything with regards to the lockout and everything is like the people who love baseball just want the baseball to be played. I don't want to talk about fucking labor stuff. <laughs> I don't want to talk about lockout stuff. I don't want to talk about all the weird financial stuff that exists in baseball, in part because I don't know anything about the great majority of it, but also because that's not fun. There's nothing fun about talking about sh- about spreadsheets and balance books. What's fun is what happens on the field, and it's so frustrating to feel like the people in charge of baseball and the people who run those teams don't care at all about that. Or that is the, that is the lowest priority for them is the actual sport of baseball. 
And it just means that the people who do love baseball are just going to have to sit on our, we're going to sit on our hands and just wait and wait and wait till the folks who don't like baseball actually decide that they feel like that they feel like letting it happen again. That sucks. There's just no way around that. That sucks. I don't want to be talking about that stuff. I want to be talking about, well, actual baseball. Absolutely. Absolutely. John, what can the good folks look out for at fangraphs.com this week? Uh, we are continuing our top prospect lists. I believe we'll be running the Seattle Mariners tomorrow, if you're at all interested. Uh, if we haven't run those already, I might be entirely off on that. Regardless, um, we'll keep our top prospect stuff going. Obviously, our big prospect 100 is coming out soon. It'll be out at some point in the last two weeks of February. Keep an eye out on that. We'll have our do a big prospect week where we talk about the top hunt 100, all the all the work that went into it. There'll be podcasts, there'll be articles, which we'll be a, a whole big chat with Eric Longenhagen, our senior prospect writer. We'll just go through as many prospect questions as he can. That'll be coming up at some point. Beyond that, unfortunately, we are we are at the whim of the lockout, just like everybody else. But you know, we're still putting out stuff daily. Dan had his big say a Suzuki piece. Obviously, we're covering the lockout too. If you want to get a very, very detailed breakdown as to the as to the owner's last proposal and why it does not why it does not and will not work, Jay Jaffe wrote a very good breakdown of it for the site that was up on Monday, and you can find it obviously up there uh, still now. I would highly recommend checking that out if you want to get into the nuts and bolts of all the of all the labor stuff. But yeah, we'll be we'll be talking prospects and we'll be talking lockout for the most part until uh, until baseball actually gives us something to talk about again absolutely absolutely john it was great to see your face and yeah, us to do the, a video see my is that how the kids do it with the you know, oh yeah or whatever that is what like they're doing that. yeah oh my god this is amazing yes i don't, I don't know what i'm doing i, I hear vote doing, playing in my head but it, it's not working i think you're doing an austin powers dance i think that's what that was can we can we just mention quickly that mm-hmm. of all the super bowl commercials mm-hmm. that was probably the one where i just sat there and was like I want this to end immediately. You didn't like the Dr. Evil one. I thought that no, was the I best one. It, I think in part for me because it was, it really did remind me, it's like, boy, this was one joke stretched out <laughs> so far in a movie. It just made me sit there and think, man, in 1996 or 97 or whatever it was, the first Goodness Oscar gracious. Came out, 98. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, we really thought this was the height of comedy. It was Mike Myers hold on, hold silly on. voices. Hold on. Hold on. I will not end this podcast with you besmirching the greatness that is the Austin Powers trilogy. Like, I love the Austin Powers trilogy. Like, I will never not laugh throughout. Like, I was actually just mentioning to the Sports Renaissance woman that I wanted to rewatch um, the series last weekend. Like, no, John, Austin Powers is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Every think- bit. Every bit is so good. I think it's for me, so it's just good. The, at least for that commercial, there was a very palpably sweaty desperation to everything. Mm-hmm. Like it, like I, and I feel I think like that way about any any commercial or any anything where the whole premise is, "Hey, remember this? Remember this? <laughs> remember this? Remember this?" Like that's all that ad was was just poking whatever portion of my thirty five year old brain is mm-hmm. in charge of things I remember from the nineties. And just going, hey, 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 you used to like this, you used to like this, you used to like this, go buy an electric car. Mm-hmm. Very, It's very weird. I, I, It's very weird now being the target demographic <laughs> because everything is now catered to us. Mm-hmm. Like the halftime show in particular, like, yeah, that was purely for the 30 somethings. Yeah. You know, that if you were not, if you were, or at least like we're in that age now, man, we're yeah. the prime demo. We are the we are the people being being catered to. We are the ones being targeted with with advertisements and stuff like that. Joke is on them though. Millennials don't have any money. 
So mm. we can't even buy any of these things. I can't afford an electric car. You kidding me? I can't I afford a regular electric car. I can't afford a Hot Wheels. Do you drive in New York at all, John? I, I do not. There's no purpose. I was going to say, does any? Do you know anyone that drives like that? Just I know, has I know the car. People have cars, but okay. it's mostly because they live in the outer boroughs. Okay, so no one within the city limits. No, Manhattan. Owning a car in Manhattan, or at least using a car in Manhattan, is is insane. It's, yeah, you should not do that. John Taylor, a at J A Taylor. Um, keep up with the good folks over there at fangraphs.com and we are on YouTube so you can see John and myself and this waving cat behind John every week I'm an Ekineko yeah there it is brings good fortune uh, there you go Oakland A's actually sure you need one no, of those I, I keep forgetting which way I'm supposed to go this is I mean you saw it both ways actually for whatever reason you yeah that's true no, it, my, my, my enormous head does not quite block it out <laughs> John Taylor always a pleasure I will talk to you next and that'll do it for this edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. If you like listening to Mr. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com and myself talk Major League Baseball at this very time on this very feed every single week, go ahead and make sure you leave us a review. Tell us why you like it and why you listen, like listening to John and myself. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, the ratings and reviews help more than you know. Make sure to follow John on Twitter at J.A. Taylor and go subscribe to Fangraphs.com and become a member today if you've not already done so. Don't forget, YouTube, Chase Thomas Podcast on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share it out, all that good stuff. Also, uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter at Chase double underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer and email the show. We're always uh, looking for Major League Baseball email questions. So if you have a question for John or myself, uh, just send it our way. Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. All right. A new episode coming up shortly. Uncle Derek, how'd I do? Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.